From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Today, food writer Melissa Clark. Her tasty recipes are favorites on the New York Times cooking website. She'll tell us how she gets inspired to try new food combinations and how she tweaks and tests a recipe in her home kitchen until she's sure it's good enough to publish. Her latest cookbook is Dinner in One, Exceptional and Easy One-Pan Meals. Also, we'll hear some amazing things you never knew about the early history of money in the United States from Jacob Goldstein, former co-host of NPR's Planet Money and author of the book Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. And John Powers reviews RRR, an epic action movie from India that's become a phenomenon with the kind of audience participation he hasn't seen since the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like a lot of families, we've gotten in the habit at my house in recent years of trying recipes from the New York Times cooking website, and we've noticed that many of our favorites are written by Melissa Clark. Over time, many other friends have said the same thing. Hers are just reliably good. This shouldn't be a big surprise, really. Clark is the author of more than 40 cookbooks and winner of multiple James Beard and International Association of Culinary Professionals Awards. She writes a weekly column for The Times called A Good Appetite, and she regularly produces cooking videos. So we are delighted to have Melissa Clark on the show as she publishes her latest cookbook, Dinner in One, Exceptional and Easy One-Pan Meals. Melissa Clark, welcome to Fresh Air. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thank you. Um, This cookbook has everything from meatball subs to peanut-crusted tofu. Um, What gave you the idea for this one-pan cookbook? Well, you know, I've always been interested in making my recipes accessible and simple for home cooks. I mean, because that's how I cook. I just love to, you know, cook my meal, to get into the chopping. But the one thing that I don't love is the cleanup. So as part of the way I always cook, I've always been figuring out how can I streamline? How can I make this recipe easier? How do I eliminate a bowl or do everything on one sheet pan or in one skillet? And I've been doing this over the years. But for this book, I decided, you know what? I know I've been kind of doing this. I want to set a challenge and I want to do one pot only. I mean, one pot meals, they are classics, you know, but we mostly think of one pots as being a stew or a soup. And I wanted to just do it across the board. Give me one vessel, a sheet pan, one of my favorites, um, an instant pot, another favorite, a skillet, a casserole dish. How do I do a meal that would normally take two or three pans and do it in one? Right, and that's how the book is organized, is by the kind of pot you get. I mean, we should note that that there will be a few other dishes here. Sometimes you cook something in the, the pan, and then you put it in a plate, and then do other things. But really only one cooking pot when it's over. The first section of recipes is stuff that you do in a sheet pan. You feel sheet pans are kind of underappreciated, don't you? <laughs> As soon as I saw a recipe, and I don't remember where I saw the recipe for the sheet pan, you know, meal, but I thought, okay, this is exactly how I want to cook because not only is it, you know, a one pan meal, meaning less cleanup, I also get to put everything on the pan, I get to put it in the oven, and then I can forget about it until it's done and I can do other things. And I love to just, you know, multitask. So my dinner is cooking in the oven and I can be making my salad, I could be setting the table, I could be calling my mom, I could be, you know, answering those last emails. 
So I started doing those meals. And once you start cooking on a sheet pan, it's really fun to be able to to puzzle it out. Okay, I have, you know, I've got my chicken and I've got my potatoes and maybe I have some spinach. How do I put them on a sheet pan in a way that everything comes out at the same time? And this has just been my obsession for the past, I'd say, I think maybe about 10 years I started really getting into it. You want to pick a favorite recipe and tell us about it? Can I just tell you about one that I'm really excited yeah. about right yeah, now? It doesn't have okay. to be the favorite, just one you really like. Yeah. <laughs> this is one. The, the reason I love this recipe is because I feel like it's a constant work in progress. So the first recipe that I published for harissa chicken with potatoes um, was in the New York Times. And this was you take sliced potatoes, you marinate the potatoes and the chicken with a harissa paste, some olive oil, garlic. Um, you know, there's cumin in there. It's such a simple marinade. And you throw it on the sheet pan. And then I finished it with a little bit of yogurt sauce. So that was recipe number one. Then I published it again in my cookbook dinner, Changing the Game. And I changed it up a little bit. And I made it a little bit easier. And I, I made sure the potatoes were a little bit more crisp, you know, changing the timing. And I changed the garnish a little bit and added more herbs. So that was version number two. The version that I am obsessed with right now is in um, Dinner in One, and it is sheet pan potatoes with harissa and cauliflower instead of chicken. And so it's meatless, but it's still a full meal. And what makes this so exciting to me is that when you, you know, roast cauliflower at high heat, those little crevices get really crunchy and brown. And to me, they remind me of chicken skin. So I have the same flavorings. I have that harissa paste. I'm finishing it with the yogurt and the herbs. I've got those wonderful potatoes. But I have that texture of the chicken, but it's completely vegetarian. So this is like, this is just my obsession of the moment. All right, good. Um, so I want to talk about your life, your work routine. I mean, you are a busy woman. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you're writing this column and you're constantly uh, publishing new recipes that appear in the newsletter that people can get from the New York Times cooking website. And then you've got, you know, the, the videos that you do. Uh, you know, we all have quotas in our work, some more formal than others. I mean, at Fresh Air, we've got to come up with five quality interviews a week. Um, how many new recipes do you feel like you need to come up with per, I don't know, week, month? How's it, how's it measured? Yeah. So that's, um, well, so just for my column alone, it is, you know, 52 recipes a year, at least. That's the minimum. Um, often there's more because I might do a column that has two or three recipes. Um, so that's like the, say that's the minimum of about 60 recipes right there. Then there's always extra recipes thrown in because I might, um, report on a story that needs to have a few recipes. So let's just add a couple more there. So let's say we're up to 65 a year. So 65 recipes a year when I'm not writing a cookbook. But here's the thing. I'm always writing a cookbook on the side. So <laughs> then I need to come up with, say, another 50 recipes a year. So we're talking well over 100 recipes a year. Do you ever wonder if you'll run out of ideas? No, because think about every meal you've ever had, right? I mean, it, it, there's always a different way to do it. There's always a slight variation that makes it a whole new meal. Um, I love playing with my old recipes and changing them. I love playing with new things. Um, you know, I'm the kind of person where if I go to the market and I see an ingredient I've never seen before or I've never used before, I will buy it and take it home and figure it out. And luckily, there is an entire internet to tell me what to do with something I don't know what to do with. So for me, the fun of my work is figuring out how to put tastes together and how to come up with new things. It's just, uh, I don't know, I think about it all the time, too. You know, it's not even when I'm working, you know, I'll just be... And walking down the street, and I'll just think, gosh, you know, what would it be like if I took, say, um, roasted apples 
and I paired it with salmon. Has What would that be like? Would that be too sweet? Would that be good? How do I make the apples a little bit sour? You know, it's like I'm already starting to think about a recipe just because I've passed, you know, a pile of apples, you know, in the supermarket window or something. So I, I, I've read that you cook pretty much at home, right? That's where you do your work. Um, and that you have a recipe tester who comes into the house some days. What does the tester do? Okay, so I have someone who comes in once a week, and um, all of the recipes that I create for publication, they start with something that I've cooked at home. So say that I'm making dinner for my family, and we're having um, we're having a roasted a whole roasted fish, and I've put you know lemon and I've put herbs in the middle, and I think this would be a really good simple recipe: a whole roasted trout with lemon and herbs. Let's have that for a recipe for the times, and. I'll cook it for dinner, and then I'll write down what I do. And one really important part of my process is I have a, a notebook in the kitchen. And because if I don't write it down while I'm cooking, I will absolutely forget it. By the time dinner is over and I've had my wine and I've cleaned up everything, I don't remember exactly what I've done. So you have to have that notebook in the kitchen. I take those notes if the dish was good, if it came out well, and then I type them into a recipe. So I already have the starting point. And then when the recipe tester, um, right now I'm working with a wonderful woman named Sophia. When Sophia comes over, she and I look over the recipe. We're like, okay, here's where to start. And she's going to cook it. And at the same time, we're going to be talking about it. Like, hey, you know those herbs? Like, what if we did um, – instead of just doing the simple herbs, what if we did it a little bit, you know, um, more, just a little bit more sophisticated and we made a chimichurri, right? And and we added lime to the chimichurri. And so the recipe is evolving. And so it starts off as dinner. It becomes this movable thing. And then we come up at the end of the day, we've got this recipe that we think is pretty good. And then the question is, well, how do we make it better? And so we do it again, or we'll do it the next time she comes and we'll we'll say, well, okay, what if we... Did What if we just increase the oven temperature by 25 degrees just to make the skin a little crispy? Or what if we added just a little bit of um, lemon along with the lime? Does that make it, you know, a little bit rounder in the citrus flavors of the chimichurri? And the way that we know a recipe is done is when we have cooked all day long, we've been eating all day long, but we're standing in front of that dish of food and we just can't stop eating. Then we know the recipe is done. And that could take, you know, we could it could take as little as two times testing it. Or sometimes it can take like six or seven. Um, for desserts, it often will take like 10 because desserts are really hard <laughs> and you have to just change one thing at a time. So for a baked good or a custard or an ice cream, it's a little more involved. And then once the recipe is exactly where we think it, if we think it's perfect, then sometimes I will send that out to another professional tester who tests in her own home. And that way we see, well, you know, is her stove different? Um, are her ingredients different? And we'll get her feedback. Um, so it really depends. But for the most part, it is um, between two and, say, six tests. So, you, so do you do several iterations in a day? Um, you make it, make if, it again, make it, make it if, again? Sometimes, but you know, sometimes it's better not to because we're kind of sick of those flavors. We're like, ugh, let's not. No, we can't eat more fish. We got to, we got to move on to the pumpkin custard, or you know, it's like here we go. We got to go to the, we got to do the pasta now or the macaroni and cheese. We like to mix it up in that way. Also, another thing is we always have a lot of leftovers at the end of the day, so it's good if they're not just like six plates of trout. Let me reintroduce you. We're going to take a little break here. We are speaking with Melissa Clark. She's a food writer and cookbook author, a staff writer for the New York Times food section. Her new cookbook is called Dinner in One, Exceptional and Easy One-Pan Meals. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. 
and John Powers will review RRR, the wildly popular Indian film he calls an epic action bromance. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the John Templeton Foundation, who believes in advancing humanity's understanding of the profound questions in life, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder since 1987. The John Templeton Foundation is proud to support leading scientists, philosophers, and theologians from around the world. Learn about the latest discoveries related to black holes, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org. Let's get back to my interview with New York Times food writer and cookbook author Melissa Clark. Her latest cookbook is Dinner in One, Exceptional and Easy One-Pan Meals. You know, I know that you like to explore cuisine from a lot of different places. Um, Do you have to be careful when you do your own take with a traditional recipe? Because, you know, some may be, you know, offended that you're violating a traditional culture or being inauthentic. Um, And I guess... Does this happen? Yes. Yeah. yeah well, this has happened. Um, I don't know if you've heard about the pea guacamole yes, story. Yes, I've heard about the pea guacamole. <laughs> tell us about the pea guacamole. Let me tell you about the pea guacamole <laughs> story. So this was not my recipe. This was a recipe I reported on. Um, it was uh, Jean-Georges Van Gerichten's restaurant, um, ABC Cocina at Union Square. And in his kitchen, the recipe, um, they served a pea guacamole. So it was avocados and green peas from the farmer's market, which was, you know, right by his restaurant at Union Square. And the thing about the peas in the guacamole, they fix the color so you can do it a little ahead because, you know, guacamole quickly turns brown if you just use avocado, right? But if you put green peas, it really fixes that color. It adds sweetness. It's delicious. It just, you don't really, uh, you don't up actually Texturally, you're not really aware of the peas, but in terms of color and the sweet flavor, I thought it was a great dish. So I reported on his dish, gave the recipe, didn't hear anything for a couple of years. And then somebody at the Times tweeted, put peas in your guacamole. Trust us. And that was a problem. (laughs) And then I heard from everybody from the Twitterverse, including President Obama and Jeb Bush, and both of them thought it was a very bad idea to put peas in guacamole. In fact, most people think it's a very bad idea. But I stand by it. I think it is great. Um, I think the problem with that tweet was that it didn't bring in the context of the recipe. It didn't say this is a famous chef who has his spin on a traditional recipe. I mean, it it was a little bit careless. And I think when you are um, when you are changing a beloved recipe and you are adapting it, you need to do it with respect and you need to really think about, first of all, why are you doing it? Is there a reason? You need to explain that reason off the top. You need to tell people what the original dish is, you know, um, so that people don't think you're just um, not aware of what the authentic dish is. And um, if you respect a dish, if you are careful with the way you present it, I do believe that you can make some changes to make it your own as long as you are completely transparent about, you know, I have I have changed this dish and this is why and this is my vision with great respect, <laughs> you know, to the original. A kitchen is a place that everybody in the family uses. Everybody's comfortable there and, you know, spends time there. Your kitchen is also your workplace. Do you have rules for your husband and daughter's use of the kitchen? Oh, no. They have rules for me. (laughs) (laughs) What are they? So, um, well, we, you know, by 6 o'clock, everything needs to be cleaned up, put away, and the kitchen needs to become our space again. And one of the things that is really important to my husband especially, is that he, does, he wants to feel like it's his space too. You know, he doesn't want to feel like he's interrupting us 
So that's that's something that is it's actually been a little bit hard to navigate. Um, but we have the rules, you know, the rules are in place and they work really well. But as long as I'm done by six, as long as by six o'clock, you know, my assistant is packed up out the door, the kitchen is clean and then we can have our family time in there. And that's I mean, and that's it's important to me, too, because I want I mean, I love being in the kitchen. That's where I want to be with my family. I don't want to be reminded that it is just a workplace. I don't want it to be cluttered. I want it to be a place of peace and calm and amazing food. Wave the wand and it's home again. Um, I, well, spend spend half an hour cleaning yeah, clean up at it the up minimum. And then wave the wand. <laughs> Make sure everything goes away. Now, now, after a day of cooking, do you want to cook for your family, or do others in the family take the apron for a night and cook, or what? Well, yeah, and usually since I've been cooking all day, there's lots of food. There's lots of food, right. <laughs> but you know, when I'm when I'm, you know, there are some days when I will do a little cooking in the kitchen and a little bit of writing. And even so, I'll still want to cook at the at the end of the day. Um, there, you know, and I think especially I, I felt particularly this way during the pandemic, um, the divide between work life and home life, between work and relaxation, like when do you turn it off, right? When do you just say, I am done and I need to stop? And, you know, if you cook all day and then you cook dinner, there has to be, it has, there has to be a divide. So for me, it's like a glass of wine or a cocktail or a piece of music or a, or a sitting down for 10 minutes and just chatting. You know, and we would always sort of figure out, like, what is that thing today? But it was like this ritual. Okay, here we are. It is 6 o'clock, and I am turning off. And how am I going to transition? Let's talk a little bit about your background. You grew up in Brooklyn, right? Your parents were both psychiatrists. Is it right? Um, (laughs) Yep, that is right. When did you begin to think deeply about food and get interested in it? Always. Always. It was, you know, food was our family language. And I think there are a lot of families out there who can relate. Like we were the kind of family that communicated in food. You know, like we'd sit down to breakfast and we'd talk about what to have for dinner. And we'd sit down for dinner one night and we'd talk about what we were going to eat the next night. And if we ever had anything to say to one another, it was always over dinner you know, food was – it was a, a lubricant. It made it more fun to talk because we were always enjoying a meal together. It made it easier to talk because you could focus on not just the words but the whole experience. It put us at ease. Um, you know, and it was – it's funny. It was such a way of communicating that when I met my husband and he would come home from work um, – I would say, what'd you have for lunch? And he would say, um, I'm fine. How was your day, honey? And I was like, and to me, to asking him what he had for lunch was me saying, you know, how was your day? How are you? Did you take care of yourself? Did you feed your body? How how are you? Um, but it took me a long time to actually just say, so how was your day? And, um, and now he says to me, he'll say, hey, my day was fine. And uh, by the way, I had tuna for lunch. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, you went to Columbia, and or uh, you went to Barnard first, right? Um, Barnard, then Columbia, yeah. Then Columbia, and you got an MFA in writing. And I, I gather writing was kind of a career choice apart from food that you knew you wanted to write. And then, in at some point, you started a catering company. This is a pretty ambitious thing for a young person <laughs> to do. Yeah, well, you know, it, it wasn't like I wouldn't say it was a catering company, but um, I when I was at um, when I was at Columbia doing my MFA, I noticed that all of the dissertation part, you know, they'd have these dissertation gatherings, these receptions, and all of the professors would get their um, catered food. They'd get these plates from the deli down the street, and I thought, huh. They're, that deli down the street's making an awful lot of money. I could, I could do that. I could make these little, you know, fancy little hors d'oeuvre cheese plates, and I could make that money. Um, 
And, you know, I was fancier than the deli down the street. I mean, I, I, I boiled purple potatoes and cut them in half and put smoked trout mousse on them. <laughs> and it was all fancy. And so I had this little company um, basically just for Columbia professors. But it was great because I learned a lot. Um, and then I started doing a little bit of private chefing in professors' homes. I started doing small parties in their homes. And then it culminated at a wedding. I did a friend's wedding and 150 people in Pennsylvania. And I, that was I, that was way out of my league. I, I was not I was not a professional enough caterer. And I remember we got we made all the food. We got to the wedding site. And there were no tables. There were no prep tables. They assumed we would bring them. I didn't think enough. I hadn't done it before. I didn't know that we were supposed to bring them. And so we had to spread everything out on the floor. It was horrible. I was on my hands and knees making little petty four plates. <laughs> I thought, I'm never doing this again. Uh, were, the, were the couple okay with what? Yeah, I mean, the food happened. was beautiful. It was all fine. I mean, we put down big, you know, we had these, luckily, we had these big um, tons of plastic, you know, tarps. So we, it was all fine. We were able, but it was just we were on our hands and knees putting together these plates. It was, and we had some tables. We just didn't have enough tables. Um, how'd you get to the New York Times? You know, isn't it all about being in the right place at the right time? I, um, A friend of mine knew the editor of the... Um, brand new dining in, dining out section. She was his assistant, um, and she helped him write a book that he co-authored with Pierre Frenet, who at that point was the 60-minute gourmet at the Times. And she went on vacation. She gave me her job while she was away. I struck up a friendship with this editor. And a few years later, he called me and he said, you know, we have this little thing, this column called The Food Chain, and are you interested in writing it? And what it was was and this was back in 1997, you know, back before WikiHow. If you wanted to know how to beat egg whites until they were frothy, you know, or until they held stiff peaks, you actually wrote a letter to the Times, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, mailed it. And then I would open this letter and I would I would write the reply and we would publish it. And it was called The Food Chain. And that was actually my first byline. It was about whipping egg whites. And um, I remember my mother was so excited. She saw my name in the Times and she called me up and she goes, did they pay you for that? And I, I was, so I joked with her. I was like, no, mom, I had to send a $25 check to make sure that they spelled my name right. But of course, they did pay me. I mean, it was just kidding her. But it was like this, you know, this, that was my first New York Times byline. And I just hung around. I just, I, I wouldn't leave. Every time they asked me to do something, I said yes, no matter what. And uh, eventually, um, I started freelancing for them quite regularly. And then in 2007, I started the column. Um, Pete Wells was the editor, actually. Before he was the critic, he was the editor of the section, and he asked me to start the column. And so that's when A Good Appetite started. You, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, I began your introduction by saying how in our house we've realized that Melissa Clark recipes are good and other people see them too. And, you know, it's funny because you like people who serve you a good meal – you inspire a lot of other people to serve their friends and family good meals. And this is in the, you know, maybe millions of people for you by now. That must feel kind of cool. It's my, my favorite thing is when someone says, I made your X recipe and it was delicious, but I changed 50 things of it. That is what I love to hear. I love people who take my recipes and change them and just – you know, make it their own. To me, that's the best because I know that I've, I'm not inspired, just inspiring someone to cook, but I'm inspiring someone to play with a recipe. You know, because I don't know. I mean, it's like I know what I like and I make recipes for the foods I like, but people like different things. 
you know, you're, you're an omnivore. You eat all kinds of stuff. But, you know, you're eating less meat. This book, you know, half of the recipes are meatless. Are there kind of ways you're kind of trying to nudge Americans in terms of diet and nutrition? Yes, I have. A, I actually have a whole. It's not very secret, but I, I, I have an agenda. I want people to eat less meat. I want people to enjoy the meat that they're eating more and focus on it. I think that when we eat meat, we need to pay attention and we need to enjoy every bite of it and not take it for granted because it is precious resource. Plus, I think vegetables, I mean, I love vegetables. I am happy when I'm eating more of them. I think I feel better when I eat more of them. So for our, our, our health, I want people to eat more vegetables. For our planet, I want people to eat less meat and more vegetables. And um, and I also think it's it's one of the most delicious ways to eat. So this is what I'm pushing. I'm also trying to get people to eat um, sustainable things that they don't necessarily think that they like, like shellfish. Some of the most sustainable ocean food that you can eat is shellfish. Mussels, clams, oysters. People can be intimidated. They think that they're hard to make. And I'm trying to get people to eat more of them and to make it friendly and maybe eat fewer species that are endangered. So this is just, you know, I mean, and the way I can do that is I can write recipes that help people get there. Melissa Clark, thanks so much for speaking with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Melissa Clark is a staff writer for the New York Times Food section, where she writes the weekly column, A Good Appetite, and produces cooking videos. Her latest cookbook is Dinner in One, Exceptional and Easy One-Pan Meals. RRR is an epic action movie from India that opened in the U.S. in March and then moved on to Netflix. Over the months since the film ended its first run, it's become a phenomenon, with special theatrical screenings filled with legions of fans who bring their friends to see it, and those friends tell other friends they just have to see it. Our critic at large, John Power, says RRR isn't just enormously enjoyable. It offers the primal pleasures of moviegoing. If you're over the age of, say, 40, you will surely remember the 1975 cult phenomenon, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Weekend after weekend, year after year, decade after decade, audiences turned up at theaters, often dressed in corsets, fishnets, and other costumes, to shriek out lines ahead of the characters and sing along with the songs. I've never seen anything like it. Until now. A few nights ago, I went to a packed screening of RRR, an epic action bromance from India that had 900 people, some of whom had already seen it 10 times, whooping and clapping and dancing from the opening credits. Made by box office titan S.S. Rajamuli, RRR induces such unabashed giddiness in its audience that Hollywood is witnessing a push to get it nominated for the Oscars. Forget best foreign language film. Folks are talking best picture, best director, best actor. And having seen RRR twice myself, I'm part of the bandwagon. Set during the British Raj in the 1920s, the movie tells the story of two heroes with sight-of-beef physiques and supercharged abilities. The tightly wound Ram works for the British as a crack military officer who we see quash a mass Indian uprising single-handed. His tiger-hunting counterpart, Beam, is a tribal villager who's come in disguise to Delhi to reclaim a young girl from his village who's been capriciously snatched by the evil wife of the evil British governor. Ram and Beam meet heroically while working in tandem to save a child from a train crashing into a river. 
kindred in their bravery, they instantly become fast friends. But they don't know one important thing. While Beam secretly opposes the governor, Ram is secretly working for him. They're bound for a head-on collision. RRR, the title stands for Rise, Roar, Revolt, is populist filmmaking. Its emotions are simple. It's anti-colonial politics broad. Rajamuli makes the British rulers of India even worse than they actually were, and they were mighty bad. But his megastar lead actors play their roles with such ardent conviction that we don't merely believe in Ram and Beam's friendship. We're moved by it. Rajamuli unfolds the many twists and turns of their story with such confidently rampaging energy that, by comparison, most Hollywood blockbusters feel anemic. I'm normally bored by action sequences, but from the opening riot to the assault on the governor's mansion to the big prison escape, during which Ram rides atop Beam's shoulders with guns a-blazing, RRR contains more exciting action scenes than all the Marvel movies put together. Indeed, there's a slow-motion shot right before the intermission that's one of the most jaw-dropping moments in the history of cinema. Just as Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and The Matrix offered American viewers a new vision of action, so RRR possesses a delirious inventiveness and originality that makes the audience go bananas. And I haven't even mentioned the marvelous Natu Natu song and dance sequence that recalls the dance-off between the Jets and the Sharks in West Side Story but is vastly more alive. You can currently see RRR on Netflix, and it's a good enough movie that you'll enjoy it. But if you can, and I'd urge local theaters to bring it back, you should see it on a big screen. For two reasons. First, Rajamuli is in love with the sheer bigness that makes movies so much grander than TV. Bursting with fights, rescues, wild animals, surging crowds, sadistic monsters, larger-than-life showdowns, and mythic transformations, RRR is not a movie that leaves you asking for more. Indeed, in these days when the box office is way down, movie chains are wobbling, and experts wonder whether the movies will even survive, RRR makes the case for returning to theaters. It reminds us that movies are always more thrilling when they're part of a collective experience, when you can share the excitement with the people around you. That excitement is electric when you watch RRR. You may well leave the theater humming the catchy tune, Natu Natu. Natu? What is Natu? John Powers reviewed RRR, available on Netflix and playing in some theaters. Coming up, we hear from Jacob Goldstein, former co-host of Planet Money and author of the book Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. This is Fresh Air Weekend. For generations, economists and political activists have debated the merits of capitalist versus socialist economic systems. But one feature both systems share is the need for a reliable and stable currency to execute transactions. Money is such an ingrained part of our lives that we don't think much about where it comes from or who injects it into the economy. But our next guest, Jacob Goldstein, has thought a lot about it. 
You may remember him as co-host for 10 years of the NPR program Planet Money. Goldstein has written a book about the history and meaning of money, illuminating, among other subjects, how the United States regulator of money, the Federal Reserve System, came into being and what it does. Besides his work on Planet Money, Jacob Goldstein has done stories for This American Life, Morning Edition, and All Things Considered. Before his audio career, he was a staff writer for The Wall Street Journal and The Miami Herald. He's currently an executive producer at the audio production company Pushkin Industries, where he hosts the business and tech podcast, What's Your Problem? His book, Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing, is now out in paperback. Jacob Goldstein, welcome to Fresh Air. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Let's go to the early decades of the United States when the United States had had separated from Great Britain and we, it was an expanding economy and there was no national currency. There was no single you know dollar that everybody shared around the country. How did that work? Yet there is this amazing moment in U.S. history uh, that kind of peaks in the oh, 1840s or so where there are – Thousands of different kinds of paper money, which is so wild to think about. It's another one that I can't believe I didn't know about it before I started, you know, studying money. Like, it's such an interesting, amazing moment in our history. So what happened was um, there were all these – there was no central bank. There wasn't even any – there weren't even any national banks. There were lots of little banks given charters by their states, by the states they were in. And uh, in a lot of states, any bank that followed a few rules could print its own paper money. And, you know, if you can print paper money, why wouldn't you, right? And so there was this incredible proliferation of paper money. Now, as in ancient China, as was the case for most of the history of paper money, this uh, paper money was claim checks, right? The, the idea was you could bring your paper dollars to the bank that issued them and redeem them for gold or silver whenever you wanted. Um, but as as you can imagine, this creates a lot of problems, right? Uh, problems for people who just want to buy or sell stuff. Like if you're a merchant and somebody walks into your store with a dollar bill from a bank you've never heard of, How do you even know it's real? How do you know that the bank is legit? How do you know that the bank is sound, right? Maybe it is a real bank, but they're going to go bankrupt and you'll bring your piece of paper in and uh, they won't be able to give you, you know, your gold or silver. And so there arose to solve this problem, these periodicals called banknote reporters that were like little, I don't know, like little newsletters, basically, little magazines that listed every bank in America and what their currency looked like, what what pictures it had on it, and also a recommendation for whether to take the money at face value or whether to apply a discount, right? If the bank is far away, so it's hard to, you know, take the paper back there and get the money back, or if the bank is unsound, you might say, yeah, I'll take your $5 bill, but I'll only give you $4.50 credit for it. And and this persisted for decades, kind of amazingly. Yeah, it's kind of – I mean, how did we build the Erie Canal with an economic system like that? <laughs> right, how do we do anything? Yeah, how did you buy breakfast, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so if you're traveling from West Virginia to Pennsylvania, you walk in and I, I've got – I want to buy the, the flour here, but I've got two different bank bills. And so they would look it up in the book and accept it, I guess. Um, obviously, this was kind of weird and tricky and – 
there were bank panics from time to time. But it's interesting. You write in the book that when economists look back at this period, it, it actually was less unwieldy than maybe we thought. Yeah, it sure sounds awful, right? And for a long time, the sort of conventional wisdom was what you'd think, like, oh, that's obviously a terrible idea. But uh, in the in the well into the 20th century, people looked back in a more analytical way and tried to really analyze, well, how much money did people lose, you know, in, in transacting? How often did these banks go bust? And what they found was that it worked pretty well. And, you know, one big upside of it is it was a growing country. And so when a bank could just set up shop and start issuing paper money, uh, it allowed for, you know, economic activity to take place. There was enough money, basically, to to have have an economy. And so it was helpful in that regard. So, yeah, I think the sort of retrospective analysis is... Yes, inconvenient, but not as bad as it sounds. Yeah, so again, one of the lessons is to have a robust economy. You need enough money in circulation to sustain all these transactions. Um, There were all run these these bank panics when people would get worried that a bank was shaky or or whatever, and too many people would try to withdraw it, and then the bank would – go out of business and then it would spread to other banks. And, and, And this would create terrible economic hardship when it happened, right? Yeah, yeah. And this persisted. You know, we got rid of all those state banknotes uh, around the time of the Civil War. And in the second half of the 19th century, there was uh, – it still wasn't the government printing money, but it was a more uniform system of of paper money. But we still had these really frequent – uh, banking crises that, you know, if you want to get the feel of it, think of the financial crisis of 2008. It wasn't exactly the same, but that was the idea. It was The problem was that banks would blow up. And n- not only was that a problem for the banks, it was a problem for people who had their money in the banks, and then other banks would blow up. So you have this uh, uh, suffering that is communicated from the financial system to everybody, right? And uh, it was clearly bad, and it kept happening. Uh, and In Europe around the time, they were sort of figuring out that you could have a central bank uh, that had the job of trying to maintain stability in the banking system. Uh, But the U.S., for a long time, we didn't want to do that. Right, because, you know, we were an independent lot and it – you know, the objection was you would be granting an awful lot of authority to people who who weren't necessarily, you know – you know, public servants. They were in many cases private bankers out to maximize their gain. I mean, the suspicion had some basis, right? For sure. But I think it wasn't just a wariness of the of the private nature of banks, although that was part of it. I think there was a broader wariness of the centralization of power more generally, right? A central bank, whether it's public or private, is an incredibly powerful institution. It controls the money. And so People were wary of granting one institution that much power. This finally gets resolved after another crash in 1907. What happened? So, as you say, it was one in a long series of banking panics. Uh, In this instance, it started in New York and J.P. Morgan, not the bank, but the man himself was the big, powerful banker of the era. And he actually got all the bankers, you know, into a room in his library and sort of made them work it out. 
And they did eventually work it out. But again, there was a lot of of suffering in the broader economy of people who, you know, were kind of innocent bystanders who were harmed by a banking panic. And finally, there was a Senator, Nelson Aldrich, who kind of said, this is ridiculous. Like, this should be solvable. They've, you know, kind of solved it in Europe, not entirely, but they're doing a better job than we are. And... (laughs) Kind of amazingly, given the, the, you know, wariness of banking power and federal power, what he does is he gets this little cabal of, of bankers basically together and they sneak off. They, they dress up as duck hunters and they sneak into a private rail car in New Jersey and go to some fancy resort called Jekyll Island, which is like a conspiracy theorist's dream, right? And they cook up the idea for what eventually becomes the Federal Reserve. And so a few years later, uh, the U.S. finally has a central bank. And they had to be secretive. Why? Because if the press got a hold of it, people would assume the worst and it would fall apart? Yeah, because like a senator uh, and a bunch of, you know, New York bankers cooking up a central bank is exactly why people didn't want a central bank, right? right? It's exactly what they were afraid of, yeah. Yeah, gosh. So after that point, for better or worse, we have this institution charged with regulating the money supply to try and keep the economy humming but without runaway inflation. So they have these these powerful tools. They can create money. They can affect interest rates. Uh, It was a powerful tool, and we had a national currency, but the people who ran the Fed, I mean, and we should say, I guess they, in many cases they were private bankers, but they were appointed by elected officials, right? The, the, the governors were, were appointed by the president? Yeah, the structure changed over time. But, but ultimately, the Fed uh, was created as a public institution. It was not a private bank. So it was a public institution with a public mission. Uh, and, you know, at that time, we were still uh, on the gold standard. And so, you know, their mission wasn't exactly the same as it was today, but but this big idea of stepping in in a crisis to, you know, prevent a panic around a few banks from spreading throughout the economy, that was central to their mission from the beginning. So what strikes me as I, you know, as I go over the story is that you have this institution with a lot of power and the Federal Reserve is, of course, is an institution that kind of regulates the money supply in the United States, but its leaders don't exactly understand how it all works. And we see that in the Great Depression when after the stock market crash, you know, they could have acted in ways that might have made a difference and probably did exactly the wrong thing, right? Yes. It is perhaps the the worst error in the history of the Federal Reserve. Uh, and it happens – It happens around 1931, right? So the crash is in 29. And, you know, again, the story I learned before I started diving into this was it was really about the crash of 29, right? And it was this, you know, the stock market bubble and then it crashed. And, of course, you have a stock market crash. But that by itself was not enough to cause the Great Depression, right? What happens is that happens and, you know, there is a recession and the economy is doing badly. And... In the same way today, if we think of today, when the Fed wants to cool the economy, it raises interest rates to make it more expensive uh, to to, uh, borrow money. Today, when the Fed wants to help the economy, when, say, unemployment is going up, we want more economic activity to get, you know, more jobs, the Fed lowers interest rates so that people will borrow and spend more and companies will borrow and invest and you kind of get the economy humming. And that is what 
the Fed should have done in 1931. But uh, it was a different world then. I think we understood the world less well then, though we still don't understand it that well today. Uh, And we were on the gold standard. And uh, people were scared. And, you know, the rule of the gold standard is you can turn in your paper money for gold, for a fixed amount of gold. That's that's the basic meaning of the gold standard. And so people were starting to do that, which is scary. It's kind of like a bank run on the currency itself. And so there's a way to fix that under the gold standard, and that is you raise interest rates, right? You make it more valuable for people to leave their money in the bank than to pull out their money and turn it into gold. So the Fed did that in 1931. But of course, that's the exact opposite of what they should have done to help the economy, right? They should have been lowering interest rates and they raised it. So they made it even harder for people to survive, for businesses to survive, for people to buy stuff. And that pushed the economy into the complete collapse of the Depression. Right. So at a time when what they needed to do was to inject more money, more credit into the economy, make it just lubricate all those transactions more. Instead, it tightened everything up. And what a disaster. Um, you know, it's interesting that that um, the person who won the Nobel Economics Prize this week, along with uh, Douglas Diamond and, and Philip Dibvig, is Ben Bernanke, who was the former Fed chairman. who He wrote about the, the Great Depression and this very thing, didn't he? He did. Before he was the chairman of the Fed, he was a professor of economics, and he was perhaps most famous for his work on the Great Depression. And he wrote about uh, not just the Fed, but but banks. So, you know, to, to sort of continue the story forward from 1931, where we were, uh, you see this wave after wave of of bank failures. You know, there was not deposit insurance yet, or at least not federal deposit insurance. So there were, it was common for there to be runs on the banks. Uh, Also, there were lots of, you know, banks tended to be very local then. So if there was a bank in a town or in a rural county where all the farmers were getting hammered and the bank had made loans to all of those farmers and the farmers couldn't pay the loans back, the bank would go bust, right? And so there were lots of bank failures. And what Bernanke figured out was that those bank failures themselves further amplified the crisis. They added to the trouble because now not only was it harder to get a loan because interest rates were higher, it was harder to get a loan because the bank just went out of business, right? And so it was another step in which the financial system itself had problems that radiated out and harmed real people. You know, libertarians love to condemn the Fed. A lot of people do. I mean, these powerful, unelected, you know, moguls who have this enormous influence on our lives. Do they have a point? I mean, they are certainly powerful and they are unelected and they do have enormous influence on our lives. So all of those things are true. Um, I mean, you have to do it some way, right? You have to manage your money somehow. So we can think, well, what are the alternatives? Well, you could have Congress do it. I'll tell you candidly, I would rather not have Congress do it. If my choices are Congress or the Fed, I will definitely take the Fed. Right. And I guess, you know, we began the the show by saying, you know, there are a lot of different economic systems, but all of them need a stable, credible source of money. And so, like, somebody's got to provide this central organizing and management function, right? Yeah, it's a hard job, but somebody has to do it, right? And, and you know, we like 
most uh, developed economies have chosen to give our central bank uh, – a large degree of independence, right? And that is a really interesting choice. Uh, you don't have to do it that way. You could you could have more democratic control. I mean, fundamentally, it's still democratic, but you could have more political control, say, of the central bank. But, you know, the belief is, and I think it's based on reasonable experience, is it is helpful to separate the central bank from people with sort of day-to-day political jobs, actually for moments like we're in right now, right? Moments when inflation is going up and up. And in the long run, it's reasonable to think we'll be better off with some amount of short-term pain now that comes from raising interest rates if we get inflation under control. And the belief is that politicians who have to answer to voters in a month won't be able to make those trade-offs of short-term pain for long-term gain. And I think that's a reasonable belief. I think I buy it. Well, Jacob Goldstein, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, it was great to talk with you. Thanks so much for having me. Jacob Goldstein co-hosted NPR's Planet Money for 10 years. He currently hosts the Pushkin Industries Business and Tech podcast, What's Your Problem?, His book, Money, The True Story of a Made-Up Thing, is now out in paperback. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Lauren Quinzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yacundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. Dave Davies.